Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey heroes up top, I quickly wanted to offer an apology for my audio quality this week. For some reason, all the audio from this episode decided to record onto my laptop's microphone instead of my very good expensive microphone. And yes, I did consider redubbing all of my lines from this week's episode. But I realized that process would probably take like 10 hours, so instead this episode doesn't sound as good as it could. But we're going to do everything we can to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. With that out of the way, take flight. A lot of cool new... Oh, you're going to hear my cat. (laughs) (laughs) Bartleby is contributing to this conversation. Yeah, he's a contributing artist to my life. Yeah. All right, heroes, uh, welcome to yet another Campaign Skyjacks world building chat. This one I am not going to brand as all my fantasy Skyjacks as that's that's IP that Jeff Stormer and Eric Catano Saez have. I don't want to encroach on their territory, but we are going to be building a, a new corner of the world of Sphere today. And I brought my lovely friend Gion Shim to the show. Gion, welcome to to I was I almost said welcome to one shot, but it's welcome to Skyjacks. <laughs> it's so good to be here. I'm so excited to uh be recording with you again. Uh I I am too. We are in the middle of kind of Gion mania over here <laughs> at one shot because we're doing two series of your games in a row because you have a Kickstarter project coming up and we we fought some technical difficulties earlier. Before we get rolling on this, would you like to tell people about your upcoming Kickstarter? Yeah, so in late April, I will be launching a game called The Shape of Shadows. It's another connected path game about a magician's assistant who's still in the process of learning their craft, but you are also your magician's last hope after he transforms himself in a way where he cannot change himself back. Yeah, it's sort of like a field guide to memory where there will be a live game where players get a daily prompt in their email for about a month. And there will also be an option to buy the fully like beautiful professionally laid out PDF. It's laid out by Ruby Lavin, who is the art director at Possum Creep Games. She's doing the layout for Wander Home. She also was hired by me and Shingen Core, my co-designer on Field Guide to Memory. And if you haven't seen or bought that PDF, it's absolutely stunning. And I'm really excited to work with her again. There will be contributing authors and artists and a lot of cool puzzle elements I haven't tried yet. Some actual honest-to-goodness sigil magic will be in there. It'll be a really fun game and a very weird one because that's all I know how to do. Now, Gian, I don't know if you know this, but magic, specifically stage magic, specifically close-up magic, is something of a meme on the OneShot Network. Is it really? Yeah, we, based on a game of One Last Job that we did a very long time ago in our history, Close-Up Magic is the dessert of magic, is what we have decided. It is the, the sweetest treat that magic can offer you. 
I love that so much. I am the person in the audience at every magic show shouting, how did they do that during like the silent moments that are carefully orchestrated? I can't contain my enthusiasm for magic. I love it so much. That makes me so happy to know. One day I aspire to have that coordination myself, but it's not going to (laughs) happen. Heroes, if you at all like magic or you just like really thoughtful, fun storytelling games, like you are going to want to get in on Shape of Shadows. You are going to be able to hear the different ways in which I have interacted with this game over on One Shot. Please check it out. This game is so in tune with some of my most beloved interests. Uh, I, I hope other people find it and turn it into a huge success. Before we keep talking about game design, because we could easily do that. We oh, are for here, hours. We're here for the world of Sphere and, and Skyjacks. For those who might be just tuning in to hear Gion and their lovely ideas, I want to point out that the world of Sphere is supposed to be a genre that I call folktale punk, drawing on folktales from really all over to create a feeling and mood for magic and existence in this world that is still like anti-authoritarian about resisting oppressive power. And in the world of Spears specifically, it is about being anti-colonial in imagining what sort of world is possible and dismantling like authoritarian power structures. But I am a white man, which makes me uniquely unqualified to do a lot of that. So what we do is reach out to creative people from all sorts of different disciplines with all sorts of different backgrounds to contribute to the world of Sphere through world building to help make the world feel less like it was designed from a single person's perspective into a sort of broad perspective thing that addresses different cultures, different ideas, different, like, honestly, vocations in ways that feel authentic to people who are coming from those experiences. So what I try to do is reach out to creative people like Gian and give them a creative blank check to write about whatever they want to write about. And then we incorporate that into the world of Sphere and hopefully into our ongoing story that we have here on the Campaign Skyjack's actual play. I am so excited by the mission statement of Spear, by the aesthetic of Skyjacks, which I actually, for your listeners, I just started listening to for the first time, and I'm having a blast. I have a hard time listening to actual play podcasts generally, but there's just something about Skyjacks, like the spirit of it, the camaraderie between the players, and how that translates over to their characters. It's a really cool world, so I'm very excited to dig in. I'm so honored to hear that. I really like what we're doing, too, and I get so excited about the contributions that people have made to the world. And the idea that like you tossed out there when we first started talking about what you might like to contribute was one that I got super excited about because it's... I don't know, it's very in tune with things that I connect with, connecting uh, different backgrounds and cultures. And like, let, let, let's start uh, by talking about the rough idea that, that you brought to me. Yeah. So this was partially inspired by a period of more accelerated interest in food history, which academically is a fairly young discipline, but obviously the study of food history and like cuisine as a cultural and historical lens is like 
eons old as long as people have been around. And I approached James and was like, what is the food culture like in this place that you want me to write about? I think your response was like, what do you want it to be like? (laughs) It made me start thinking a lot about my own experiences, reconnecting with family as an adult and bringing back memories of being a child in Korea. I'm Korean and my family is Korean. And let me tell you, you want to talk about food culture, food in Korea is like a way of being like when when you ask someone how they're doing, often the way you ask is by asking if they've eaten. Mm hmm. You know, you ask, like, have you eaten? And that's your way of saying, like, how are you doing? Like, are you okay? You know, do you want to spend some time? And it's a it's an expression of, of like, care and nurturance, which is, like, extremely Korean and also 100% what my family does, what I do. I also, just as a person, I love food. I love studying food. I love reading the weird histories of specific ingredients. When I was a bookseller, trend for many years of, like, history through a single object. Mark Kurlansky is a really emblematic author of this. He wrote a book called Cod, which was his first. And then the more glamorous, more successful one was uh, Salt, where he looked at global world history through the lens of a single trade item. And I think it's no coincidence that both of those things are food. I think Cod is a more historically strong nonfiction work, but Salt is really accessible. It really captures popular imagination. And it also is such a folkloric fairy tale element, right? Like there's there's multiple fairy tales of a character whose love is tested and misunderstood when like a father, a lover, someone asks her like, how much does she love them? And she says, I love you as much as I love salt. And so that got me thinking a lot about this coastal vibe because the the place that we're talking about, Spear, it's a, it's a port town, right? Or a port city? Spear overall is built up of largely disconnected locations. The world of Sphere used to be like spooling up into the sort of colonialist expansion that we're familiar with in the Age of Sail in our own history. Sphere became a place for 200 years where people vaguely kind of remembered that there were other places, but it was too dangerous to go to them. A lot of the cultures that were left kind of got defined by the trauma of well, the stars fell from the sky, and after that, the seasons didn't flow in order, and everybody here really had to work very hard to survive together. So now we have skyships, and we can actually start traveling the world again, but there aren't nations anymore. It's just sort of like civic localities. A couple of things that immediately come to mind are, generally speaking, coastal places in near like kind of warm-ish or multiple season seas tend to be pretty fertile. There's a lot of bounty in the ocean itself. Mm -hmm. In California, when I teach foraging or wild food and stuff like that, people sort of assume that you're going to find most of it in the forest. But generally speaking, you're going to find actually a lot of it in like oak savannas and grasslands and and, um, also by the coast. Because if you're looking for things like protein, fat, calcium, you're going to find them mostly in animals. And the easiest animals to find and actually catch and eat if you don't have hunting equipment yet or you don't have a community infrastructure, which we'll talk about in a second in terms of food systems, is like foraging in a tide pool or some very basic fishing. You can actually do tide pool fishing with a technique called poke polling, which I've done and is very fun, where you have like a long stick, like eight to ten foot long, like sturdy staff made of bamboo or something, something 
long but flexible with a hook and bait on the end and you actually literally poke it into holes where you've seen fish or crustaceans go into. In California, we have a really, I think they're very cool looking. I have also heard that they have faces only their mothers could love fish called monkey-faced eels. And they're... Well, if it's an eel already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're delicious. They're, they're really good. They tend to be pretty big and they hide, right? And so you have to really actually understand the habits of these animals. But once you do, it's way easier than like going out and, and big game hunting or even bird hunting or something like that. Generally speaking, even a lay person could have more success. Okay. There are a lot of things to talk about. What One yeah. thing that I'm noticing <laughs> is important talking about this is finding a way for people who inhabit this region to be safe enough from the mariner that they can live coastally and still fish, but also have enough danger and risk that the red feathers haven't already tried to come and take this. Yeah. One of the things that like when we were earlier talking about food culture that that appeals to me, I have a lot of complicated feelings about America, but... (laughs) Sorry, that was just, that is a a very pithy understatement. Yeah, I agree. I also... (laughs) Coming from New York, both my mom and dad's family originally came to the United States through New York and eventually moved to Boston. You know, we're immigrant families, like on my mom's side, Irish folks who were affected by British imperialism, having to leave Ireland during the quote-unquote potato famine, and Mm -hmm. come to the United States and live here. And, you know, my dad's side, economic trouble in Italy led them to come to New York. One of the cool things about New York is neighborhood by neighborhood, you had all these different people from all these different places living like right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. That did lead to a lot of strife because, you know, these are immigrant families. They weren't being treated super well by the United States. And there's a little bit of like cultural isolation that you're trying to do. But also it means that like you walk down the street for one place and you have access to food that you never could have imagined. And when kids grow up together and go to school together, those that don't partake in racist bullying come away with new experiences and like new friendships that, you know, their parents just never had access to. There is something really special, I think, about that. And I like the idea of a place that can draw people to it to be together and around each other that doesn't necessarily have some of the more spindly, terrible insect-like hooks that colonialism (laughs) carries with it. Completely possible, even for a small community, to overfish or overhunt a general locale. But I do think that, you know, one of the reasons I brought up tide pooling, and the poke pulling is a little bit, it belies this a bit, you don't need to have a lot of, like, finessed skill to find food in a tide pool. You just need to be observant and, and have strong situational awareness on an individual and community level, right? And I think that you can overextract a tide pool biome for food. And then like, guess what? You will not have food the next month, the next season. They're pretty delicate ecologies. And so I think maybe before the airships start sailing around a lot, and maybe this is actually something that becomes explicitly encouraged for people who do land in new places to to adhere to these customs, that idea of like, how do we provide enough for ourselves while also sustaining 
this is where it kind of gets back to that idea of like, what does land mean? What does wilderness mean? One of the big paradigm shifts that I had was when I learned that indigenous communities and tribes in California, largely the Pomo, the Miwok and Ohlone nations tended the land really actively. And I think there just has to be some aspect of that happening here too. If it's really, if it's precarious and dangerous to just be near the sea or in the sea, but that's also where a lot of your food is coming from, there must be a lot of tending to try to encourage food systems as safely and like pseudo, not domesticated exactly, but like in symbiosis with your own safety practices and and just like daily routine as possible. So this is where we, we get to some interesting territory because Skyjacks actually weirdly provides tools to define wilderness and whatnot very explicitly. In the world of Sphere, seasons do not flow in order. It can be winter for a oh. week and then the next week it's summer. Or, you know, maybe you can get six months of winter or something like that. They don't flow in order. They are kind of wild and random. The wilderness, the untended and wild plants and animals, simply follow the seasons as though they were living them in a natural order. So a tree that is a wild apple tree, if it is winter on Tuesday, it will be bare. But on Wednesday, if it's autumn, it will be full of fruit. Oh my God. And if you grow a grove of apple trees, they will not follow the seasons. They will follow your experience of seasons, which is you will have to protect them from the frost of winter on Tuesday in order to, you know, keep them alive. So tended food is food that like anything that humans control it does not have nature's like protection in a certain sense. Yeah, there's no predictability. So like foraging, it's weird. You can have a wild bounty foraging in certain ways because you could get like 10 autumns a year, 10 harvests a year. But, you know, you might not get that if you're trying to grow a field because like you really have to think about what sudden weather changes are going to mean. And if you're not growing with a greenhouse you are in trouble. Okay, so immediately, I would love to talk about preservation. I feel like in in circumstances where food supply is really unpredictable, and it's like that dramatically unpredictable, like, yes, this is for narrative purposes. First of all, that's very fucking cool. I think that is just like, oh, shit, can I swear? Yeah, you can swear. (laughs) Okay, okay. So food preservation and food preservation techniques are really broad. And I feel like When I was talking about community infrastructure, I don't just mean like literally having a solid core community of people who all live proximate to each other, who all have a variety of skills and can kind of like step in where there is need and who know each other and care about each other on like a very basic level. If you've ever been living in a small town or in my case, like growing up Korean American in the South, our church community and our Korean American community kind of felt like a small town within a bigger town Mm -hmm. where maybe you don't all... 100% like each other, but you are all going to take care of each other at at the very least at a very basic level. So for me, it was like when a hurricane came in and one of our community members' houses got flattened by a tree, luckily the half that they were not sleeping in, like everyone chipped in to to help them rebuild because the cost was like astronomical. They could not support it on their own. Similarly, I imagine in these places where there are so many tangible and existential threats, 
Like if you don't have that kind of community mutual investment and reciprocity in each other, you're fucked. You are just not going to make it on your own. This is actually one of the most misguided tropes in wilderness survival archetypes in America and maybe elsewhere, this idea of like the lone survivor Mm. or like the lone person making it like there are absolutely ingenious, resourceful people who who make it on their own in like times of crisis or unusual circumstances. But if you deliberately try to go out and just live by yourself, you're going to have a really miserable time. The best way to survive is to do it with other people who are also helping you and you are helping them. And what I love about that is it also reflects like you have to have that reciprocity and mutual care with your actual environment, urban, Mm. suburban, rural, whatever, if you want to be taken care of, right? Because nature is beautiful and vast. And I personally, like in my real life, care about the natural world as much as I care about my my human community. And nature does not give a fuck about an individual person ever, right? Like it's, it just keeps trundling along. And I feel like in Spear, that's like dramatically exaggerated by how unpredictable the seasons are. The, the natural world just does whatever it's doing on its own unspoken rhythms, which people in Spear just have no idea how to read in a way where they can chart it in advance, right? So they're just kind of always either present or playing catch up which is why preservation is so important. If you don't have big stores of preserved food, of food that is shelf stable, that can withstand different weather conditions, that can withstand different temperatures day to day, then you're not going to have the steady core foundation of food supply that you need in order to then supplement it with things like foraging, gardening, small-scale agriculture, what have you, trade even. This makes sense. Like a lot of the origin for things like food preparation and food Mm -hmm. flavoring is based on preserving that food and and making it last and palatable while it lasts. Yeah, there are a lot of spices that have like antibacterial or antifungal properties. And that's why some preserved foods are like extremely spiced. Turmeric is actually one of them. And obviously salt has really strong preservation properties. And there are also a lot of spices that are designed, like you said, to make it palatable, right? Like some foods, when you preserve them, they do lose some flavor, even though they retain a lot of nutritional content. What makes it taste good, it's 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 the seasoning, mm-hmm. which is... Again, in like our real world history, that's part of why spices became so valuable. Yeah, I imagine that there must be a similar, not necessarily huge colonial trade route set up around that. But if preservation is a big part of foundations of survival, then there must be a lot of interest in spices, flavoring, preparation. I, I think the Red Feathers are trying to prioritize finding resources that they see as valuable initially to trade for those resources and introduce it into its commerce pipeline that it maintains, but like also to eventually like, hey, if this place produces this resource, let's slowly do our thing where we insinuate ourselves into this culture. And uh, before you've turned around, now everyone goes by our corporate policy and we've taken over. Right. Another thing that I want to touch on, because we're talking about food preparation and whatnot, we need to address water and how water is, generally speaking, considered extremely dangerous. (laughs) And the ways that I have tried to make that still a thing that we can have in the world, even though like you need water to live. So seawater is the most dangerous kind of water. You can catch a mariner's mark 
from being around the sea too much. Whoa. The rule is, if you are sailing within sight of the coastline, things are dangerous, about as dangerous as the sea can get. If you get to an area where you can no longer see the coast, there are sea monsters, there are terrible storms, the sea is actively trying to kill you. And if you spend enough time on the sea, there are temptations to adopt like little superstitions. They might eke into your mind in like, you know, very like small ways. It's like, oh, I always look away from the coast when I'm sailing out and don't look at the coast when I'm getting out to the water because it binds me to a certain place. And if you do enough of these, the mariner works his way into your mind and eventually you'll look down at the palm of your hand. You'll see a black spot and that's the mariner's mark and like you are starting to go away. (gasps) So seawater is bad. Okay. Then there are lakes and rivers. The Rusalka is a force in the world, which, you know, sort of acts like Rusalka in myths, like you can get tempted into the water and it can drown you. Also, eels, I've I've just learned this very cool thing about eels. There are some freshwater eels that will go into the sea to mate. That's how they do it. It's pretty wild. Eels specifically that live in the water that like have this connection to the sea. So you have to really watch yourself around all bodies of water. So is it even like animals or plants that are connected to the sea can also pass on the mark if you overexpose yourself to them? Curlews, definitely. Eels, maybe. But like fish, not as much. And like there are people that will go out and find sea monsters, find leviathans. And, like, butcher them for parts the way we did to whales a while ago. So, like, you can prepare these things, but it comes to preparation. Water that comes from the sky, like, if you find water in a cloud, it is, like, mundane water that is pure and beautiful, like water from our world. If water comes down through rain, it is close to the sky and pretty much okay. If you boil water, air bubbles will come up in the boil that is introducing the sky to water, so that water becomes okay. There are ways to treat and prepare things that are connected to the water to make them safe for consumption. Part of this plays into the magic system that we have, which is a very folk-based magic system. If there is a tradition, if there is a belief that is not just personally held, but held by a community or a people, that belief carries its own magic. So if you grow up in a community that's like, oh yeah, we can go pearl diving as long as we're wearing this particular garment or as long as you know we've drunk this thing, that probably yeah. means that it's okay for you to go pearl diving so long as you have that cultural belief backing it up. And the thing that separates that from superstition is it's not something that's individually created. It's something that's like supported and believed by a community around you. Is that the idea? Yes. Story is also part of the magic system. If you can tell a story that carries its own weight and power, it is also a little bit magical. So like superstitions, you know, bleed into that a little bit, but like as soon as something becomes a tradition and that can be a capital T tradition where, hey, this is a cultural thing, like a festival that we've been doing for as long as anyone can remember and is so 
important to who we are as people. Like it can be that big or it can be a tradition like, hey, every Friday night we go out drinking and we say good luck to each other when we toast. Yeah. Like that's all tradition. It's all part of the same magic. But what I, I think comes out of it is food traditions and, and the way food is prepared and whatnot culturally people in all of the various disconnected places and sphere have their own ways that they've been making it work if there is a river that separates one community from another it's probably a really bad idea to cross that river and those two communities being separate will have their own traditions of how they made surviving in that area work for themselves yeah, so I imagine there's like a lot of knowledge or or technique in common, but a lot of reg- like intense, specific regionalism around all the traditions around those skills, which is really interesting. The one food-driven place that that is not the place that that you're going to write about that we have is Drew for Skyjack's Courier's Call. Drew loves doing dialect and gave one of the characters a southern dialect. And so we created this region called the Honey Smoke Mountain Range, which the Honey Smoke Mountain is the center of these various communities that have different traditions of what they think barbecue is that sort of (laughs) represent like the great American traditions of barbecue. So that like we have the people to the South of the Honey Smoke Mountains are very Texas. And it's like, it's all about how the meat is cooked and the Mm -hmm. way that you're cooking it. And, you know, we have like in the North, you've got like the North Carolina style. Hey, this is a very honey based barbecue sauce off to the side of that, you've got the South Carolina style, like this is super vinegar based. And, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. In, within that region, like there's a compass of place, like all barbecue is only pulled pork. And if you are bringing any other meat to the table, it's not barbecue. And people from Texas are like, well, you need cows. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There is kind of this vicious food regionalism that is settled <laughs> in an annual cooking competition that people in the Honey Smoke region hold. So I I kind of think that sort of regionalism, even though we really concentrated hyper-specific there, like that's got to exist everywhere. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Also, as a former North Carolinian, the barbecue thing like really speaks to my heart. I am really partial to that vinegary sauce on it. Is it it North Carolina? Did I screw that up? Oh, both Carolinas. Um, Yeah, yeah. I I know that one Carolina prefers honey-based sauce more than vinegar-based sauce, and I might have screwed up which one. That's all right. I remember growing up with a lot of really vinegary sauces because we would do hog pickings, which are when you take like a whole pig and you roast it, which Mm -hmm. means there's just a lot of fat in the meat, like just permeating the meat. And so the vinegar helps cut through that. It, it like balances it out a little bit. I, I am like sweet partial to too, a vinegar-based sauce myself. Me too. I, I yeah, it's do good. love it, but I'm not going to thumb my nose at honey-based sauces or any other sweet sauces. Like it's all, it's all you know, barbecue. It's all. It's good. all good. If it's good, it's good. That's how I feel about food. I spent I spent a while being a working as a barista, and it made me very snooty while I was working as a barista. And now that I just drink coffee, I'm like, yeah, if it's coffee and it's good, I like it. Bartleby clearly likes any and all food because he's screaming at me about it, even though he's got food in his bowl right now. <laughs> look at this. Look at look at this. Nonsense. Did you see that? Yeah. So, sorry for, yeah. for people who can't see what happened. He he will beg by like literally tugging at my sleeve like a Victorian orphan. <laughs> so anyway, immediately some techniques for preservation that I think are in line with these folk traditions and kind of like 
aversion to water and aversion to the sea. Like water is also kind of not something you really want in preservation. Like you don't want just water because that's, Mm. you know, a hotbed of bacterial growth. That's why you pickle things. It's also why you take the water out. So air drying, even like salt curing and then air drying. Things that come to mind are biltong, which is when you take an actual piece of meat, you cure it by hanging it somewhere where there's going to be a lot of dry kind of cold air, which is why it's made in very specific regions of the world. Those same regions can actually do the same thing with like dairy, like really high butterfat dairy, and you can dry dairy and it becomes almost like um, astronaut ice cream a little bit. That's cool. Yeah, like dehydrated milk fat which is obviously really useful to carry around as a travel food. You also have things like salt-cured fish that are air-dried in Korea, Japan, China. Again, like places that have a lot of access to coastal regions. I don't know how people feel about eating seafood in spear, but like maybe just the presence of hanging it in the air and the air like purifies it a little bit because I can't imagine you would turn down the opportunity for like animal protein, salt, fat. There's there's no way. And I have established on the show that like there are some places where people still go out on boats to fish because, hey, you don't have other options. Yeah, yeah. If you were a fishing community before, you have to. Yeah, when you were talking about the pearl diving and also just like how if you can still see the coast, it's dangerous, but you're like, okay. But on the open water, it's extremely risky. And also you can't develop individual superstitions without like bringing the attention of the mariner. That immediately made me think in order to try to create headwind against developing superstitions, I imagine there's a lot of pragmatism among people who fish or interact with the coast daily Mm -hmm. as their way of life. Like you have to be extremely pragmatic because the second you let little folkways that you haven't specifically grown up with as like community tradition enter in, you're opening yourself to the mariner and that there's a lot of maybe teamwork involved with that. And therefore also like the not so great side of that is like monitoring, right? You're like kind of always in each other's business being like, why did you step over that crack? Why did you uh, not eat that thing, right? If like one person has the mariner's mark, it can fuck up the whole community. So I imagine that there's like a lot of that. There isn't a lot of like privacy of feeling in regard to to like pragmatic practice. Which I, I think makes sense if you are a community that is a coastal community. Because like if somebody yeah. develops a mariner's mark in a coastal community, that could mean that the mariner and his fleet of drowned sailors are like on the way. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so that that makes sense to me. And what one of the things that I wanted to accomplish with that sort of thing is, if you are somebody who is from this fishing village that keeps to your village's traditions and whatnot, you know, you can do this thing that other people would, would consider dangerous. But if an outsider comes in and tries to do what you do and take that from you, they are going to absolutely get wrecked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I imagine there's a lot of regional pride Mm -hmm. and a lot of like camaraderie and pride in each other and like deep skepticism of people who are not from the same traditions you are or and or uh, people who do not live on the coast like you do because even if you are not in the same regional community is like 50 miles up on the coastline they're still living in the same conditions you are Mm -hmm. so at the very least you know they are not going to be foolish but some randos who live inland who just air shipped in like you want them out of your hair as soon as possible yeah it is i'm trying to like strike up a difficult and delicate balance with 
outsiders and how outsiders are viewed. Because what I want is for a pirate ship, especially one that is, you know, is disconnected from the Red Feather fleet, shows up one day over your village. They land and they've got like weird stuff that you've never seen before and they want to trade with you. And mm-hmm. there are different languages in the world of Sphere, like our real world. The one thing that is connected between all of them pretty much everywhere has Illimat or the Luminaries, which is oh, this okay. tarot-style deck. So people coming down from oh. these sky skyships have this deck of cards that is full of like principal ideas <gasps> that like kind of everybody has stories that they're connected to. The river representing oh, cool. one bank separating another bank from another and like danger in between, but a valuable prize on the other side or whatnot. So James is for listeners, James literally held up a card that said the river. Oh, that was so beautiful. That's such a gorgeous like piece of art. This is more connection to the Decemberists. The Decemberists teamed up with Keith Baker to make a card game called Illimat, which is based <gasps> uh, the first iteration of Illimat was based on Hazards of Love, my favorite of their albums. Truly, oh, it's a great I think album, it's a yeah. masterpiece, but like it is based on scenes and characters from that album is this like tarot-style deck that is used in their card game. And the art is done by Carson Ellis, who is... Yeah, I I love Carson Ellis' work. It's gorgeous stuff. And in the world of Sphere, it is Sphere's tarot deck. But like one thing that everybody kind of has in common is the stories that are attached to this deck. Like everywhere has the game. If you were to set up an Illimat table anywhere in Sphere, even if you didn't speak the same language as the person they would be able to play the game with you. And that's cool. Everybody has different ideas of what the luminaries mean to them, but like everybody kind of has the same luminaries, but like a pirate ship can show up to your community. Even if you've never seen a sky ship before, they can like use cards to kind of communicate and try and trade with you and then leave pirates because they are cut away from the world of the red feather in order to survive. They can't, afford to be raiding pirates or any raiding pirates are kind of people that other pirates would want to take care of because if you can't trade with anyone you're dead and if like your whole trade develops a reputation for being violent or incursions into like established spaces then like you're all fucked so like this actually really is like a you got to keep keep it level and and there's there's cultural baggage too of like your sky traders that like raiding communities and killing and hurting people that's mariner stuff that's how you go down a dark hole that you can never come back from so so cool i'm trying to introduce it creates a context where a person could come in from the outside and you would have a positive experience and exchange a little bit of like goods or culture or what have you and then be on your merry way and everybody just kind of had a decent experience with one another without again the hooks of colonialism like getting gnarled into that yeah yeah i feel like there's there is a a direction that this could go where it doesn't feel as interesting to me where like people could be really grim right the combination of pragmatism with the dangerous conditions but in my experience that is not generally how people tend to be Mm -hmm. like even living in adverse conditions if you have community and you have like that security and the foundation of 
people who have your back and you have their back around you, then there's like general contentment. So I learned recently that Abraham Maslow, who wrote uh, famously and, and like constructed the theory around the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is what every individual needs to like be their, their best self or whatever, is actually closely based on Blackfoot nation idea. And it was missing half of the idea, which is wow. that's what the individual needs. But there's a whole nother network of what a community needs. And those two things have to exist together for both the community and the individual to be like whole and functional. I think that that is both very telling of, of <laughs> kind of like individualism in our culture, mm-hmm. but also I think it's also really reflected in, in my anecdotal, like firsthand experience. Like when I go into communities where, where it is, and I'm defining community by like proximate as in like people are local to each other mm-hmm. and, or there is a lot of continued maintenance of relationship and communication. So like maybe you are in community with people you don't live near, but you're talking to them a lot. You're very involved in each other's lives. Like you know how each other's doing like on a given week or a given day. There's a lot of sharing of resources, both like both ways, like a recep- reciprocity and also sharing of ideas, stories, like jokes, joy, like just the things that make you happy in addition to basic needs. And I, I'm seeing like in my mind's eye, a lot of communities that are like very vibrant, deep senses of humor, anything that isn't grim, right? Cause I feel like it's so easy to create stories that are like, yeah, these are people who live in dangerous conditions. They must be like tight lipped Puritans all the time. And it's like, well, not like, not if they're happy. <laughs> like, I think you can live in proximity to danger and risk and be happy and still find contentment and, and um, reward and fulfillment uh, with like being alive and being with each other. Um, and so like, is there suspicion toward sky traders? Like probably, but are they met with hostility intrinsically every time? Like, I'm going to say no. And unfortunately, that also has a basis in historical reality with a lot of primary accounts of literal white settler colonialists mm-hmm. coming into, you know, the North American continent, Southeast Asia and being met with pretty friendly perception and then completely like decimating everything they touch. And we are living with global climate consequences of that to this day. I think I love the idea that with Spear, there is a reciprocity on the part of the people coming in. Like they know they can't fuck around. They know they can't just expand in there. Even like attempts by the Red Feathers to do so, I imagine have to be extremely subtle. And it is probably not easy to get by the observation because it's it's so hard to break these communities up, which is one of the first tactics that colonialism, white supremacy, imperial power tends to do. They try to break up and divide groups that have solidarity with each other. If you can't do that, then you're just going to look like a big joke a lot of the time. <laughs> like, I wonder how many like stories and plays there are about like emerging about Redfeather, like trying to come in and they're kind of like the the stupid god and trickster stories. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I am just like picturing like little shadow box theater, like especially of we're we're talking a little bit about food because one of the locations Gian pitched is like kind of this this place where people from different cooking traditions are like living together. But I'm picturing in like that community specifically of like little theaters setting up like just dunking on the red feather because like this place knows that they're bad news already. Yeah. And, yeah, like, yeah. They're they're inoculated against that virus. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's not even like trade of information. It's just the literal structure of interaction. They're like, oh, you know, we know this could go bad. And so we're not going to let it go bad. Yeah. And it's interesting because I wasn't as familiar with all of the lore around the Mariner when I pitched this idea. So the way that I was imagining it was like literally like a port city or a port town, like like a lot of cities in Italy, mm-hmm. a lot of places in uh, Korea. But now I'm actually imagining it being more inland and maybe based in like a large riparian zone. Riparian zones are stretches of land that are between a body of water and then like uh, an inland place where there isn't a lot of water. And so like you still have a lot of the biodiversity and soil nutrition. I find soil nutrition very interesting. I'm sorry if it's, I will not get too into it. No, please get into it. Nobody knows about soil nutrition. We could all learn something. So the presence of water, even if it's not a literal body of water right in front of you, it introduces really cool things to the soil pH, which means with the unpredictability of the weather in Spear, you could have either completely crap soil or really vibrant soil in a riparian zone that is really fertile. In California, riparian zones tend to be places you find a lot of like tender greens, corn-based starches, wildflowers spring up in riparian zones. You get small little microbiomes, like like three or four of them all in a single riparian zone. So like my favorite, one of my, it's hard to pick a favorite, but one of my favorite like landscapes in California is like the Northern California coast. So where I live, if you go up a couple hours into like Jenner County, Salt Point State Park is is really emblematic of this. You will drive in to like a dense shaded redwood forest where even with the logging that happened at the turn of the century, there are giants of trees just like all around you. And the cool, one of the cool and sad things is because of the logging, often these giant trees will actually have been the clones of a mother tree. And so you'll see like a a leveled tree trunk, like, I don't know, the size of like a room, like my living room is about the diameter of, of some of these trees. And around them are now fully grown like 100 150 year old trees all kind of almost like standing vigil and they're all clones of that mother tree and then from that forest if you just keep walking toward the ocean you'll hit depending on the directions you go grass savannas dunes the coastal sandstone cliffs and then you can scale those cliffs down into all of these little coves that have like gorgeous big tide pools. You find urchins, kelp, fish. When they were more abundant, abalone, red abalone will even like mm. be in the tide pools. Anemones, octopus. There's just so much life right on the coast. And in that stretch, you're hitting like four different kinds of landscape, right? The forest, the oak savanna, the dunes and cliffs themselves, and then the sea. That's just so amazing to me. The vibrance of California really is a huge influence on a lot of my my work because I'm just, you know, through my old job, I just learned to, to love it so much. And I think one of the things I have to remember is that there are a lot of places in the country and the world where generally speaking, you're only going to really see one or two biomes within a couple hours of you. But I don't think Spear is like that. I think Spear actually is like, especially because of the gradation of the weather and how much ocean is just all around you all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like those little microbiomes where you can walk on foot for like four hours and you will see like half a dozen different kinds of landscape around you.
Hey heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to the mid-roll. Heroes, this is the last of our world-building episodes before we return to main plot Skyjacks next week. I hope everyone had a great time listening to our guests and that Casey Tony had a great time resting up. Before we get back to the show, I want to remind everyone that we are currently casting for a new player character on Campaign Skyjacks. We're hoping to bring in a performer to play the notorious Captain Oromar Vale. And we are currently accepting applications. If you're interested, you can send a headshot, resume, voiceover, or acting reel. Please, no commercial reels, just character reels. Or if you don't have a professional reel, you can submit a recorded monologue to auditions at oneshotpodcast.com. If you'd like more information about the character, what we're offering as a network, and who we're looking for in filling Oromar's shoes, you can head over to bit.ly slash Oromar audition. That's bit.ly slash O-R-I-M-A-R audition. We've got a character breakdown for Oromar, a brief description of your responsibilities, and official character art. We're accepting applications through April 10th. If you think you can be the captain, be sure to apply, or if you don't, send it to someone who you think could. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, we're able to do things like cast roles on the show, pay all of our performers, commission new music for the show, hire freelancers to expand our setting, and of course pay Casey Tony, our beloved editor, and sometimes pay Tracy Barnett to step in as guest editor. All of the wonderful things that come from the show are made possible by listeners like you. So if you like what you hear, please head over to patreon.com slash one shot podcast. If you sign up to become a backer, you can find all sorts of great bonus content there including the latest Tales from Sphere, where I explain the meaning behind Take Flight. A huge thank you to everyone who supports us already, and everyone who's going to support us in the future. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get back in the sky. That makes sense. Like that, that really, really makes sense, especially because you can't cultivate large tracts of land. It's basically impossible to do that. Like nobody is. Which is great because then (laughs) European style agriculture can't take hold. And that is one of the worst things to happen to any piece of land. Uh, You're like, yeah, like Western European, like British agriculture is like a way that you can just absolutely fuck up land for a long, 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 long time. And part of the reason why is because it scales industrially, right? Mm. And because a lot of it is about extraction of resources. 
rather than tending. There is a, a permaculture concept called a food forest, which basically is the idea of if you are living in a piece of land and you're there for a long, long time, you can actually tend a forest or a wetland or a grassland to provide food for you over decades. And it will take decades to do it, but there are examples of food forests. I'll send you some links after this where you walk in and there's like like orchard trees like incorporated in with like native trees. There's a bunch of greenery that you can eat just growing most of the year. There are animals because like, again, fauna, right? Animal biodiversity, bird biodiversity, insect biodiversity is also a food source. They're all attracted to the kinds of plant biodiversity that are there. There's often a body of water incorporated in, which in turn will attract biodiversity as well. You can see this happen a lot with like um, beaver restoration projects in the United States, state parks, pieces of land, small towns that have decided to be like, you know what, we want to reintroduce beavers. We want them to be able to build their dams unimpeded. Often within 10 years, that whole ecosystem is thriving in a way that it wasn't before. I have a friend in Mendocino, who, which actually is this kind of like Northern California landscape, who has a small farm. And she's been over the course of 10 years, completely redoing the literal land on her farm. Like um, right now, there's a bunch of gorse growing there, which is an, an introduced species that tends to really take over fields and unbalance them. So because of that, she started tending sheep instead of uh, other animals because sheep love gorse and they don't eat indiscriminately the way goats do. So they will actually pick out that one species. Mm. She also has been growing plugs of native grass species and has recently been like replanting them now that the gorse is mostly gone. Native species will create soil conditions and biodiversity conditions that just have more species there. So instead of looking at a field where all you see is like European grass and wild mustard, you see like 50 different species of plant in the same amount of land. And if you can do that, you can provide food for yourself for a long, long time and for many people for a long time. And that is how land was tended in California before colonialism and before people settled here. So like thinking through all of this and like how cool this is and how a community would need to start up around this and so also kind of like getting at a build getting at building the sort of culture that would be able to accommodate people from the outside coming and and bringing traditions of their own that get incorporated mm-hmm. to a community like this part of me thinks like the people who built this place had to have been displaced at a certain point and yeah happen upon like new circumstances where there is this bounty that you have to like kind of learn to live in tune with and like have people teach each other things. Like I almost think because the stars fell from the sky, seasons started flowing out of order and like water levels around the world also started rising. Maybe people lived other places and like their communities kind of got shattered. They had to move further inland and all of a sudden all they have is each other. And it's like, yeah. this community is just like, okay, we have, we each have like five different ways of preparing this thing, but we don't know how to prepare or use this. And you seem to know how to prepare and use this. And they yeah. just kind of like build this new thing together. And not only that, but cultivate it in like a, non-colonial European way it is like it's not land cultivation and hey we are tilling a field that is our own 
it is one that seems to be working with the natural cycle because I love the idea of someone somewhere in Sphere finding a way to be a custodian of their environment, cultivating their environment in a way that doesn't break it out of whatever natural cycle inoculates it to the wild seasons. If you look at the way that fauna build their homes, it is not always, but often like incorporated into vines, into shrubbery, into branches of trees. You do have species like osprey, for example, will literally just build like a pile of twigs on top of a tall place. And that's pretty cool. But like what I'm imagining is communities of people kind of echoing and mimicking dens you know, like fox dens or birds that are ground dwelling and so have to like disguise their homes really well. Mm. And I imagine that part of the way these homes are made is with really good insulation so that when it gets really hot, they stay cool. And when it gets really cold, you can warm it up and retain the heat easily. This this is maybe too direct and it does require a lot of like building infrastructure. But in Korea, you have undol, which are um, floors that are usually made of Traditionally, they're made of something like stone so that they stay cool in the summer because Korea is one of those places that gets really hot in the hot seasons and really cold. And it's like the hottest and coldest place I've ever been in my life. And (laughs) the nice thing about the undo floors is traditionally in the palaces where they were where they were built, because generally speaking, like people living in rural areas did not have this in their homes, but they did have other ways of insulating their floors so that they were pleasant in these extreme seasons. In the palaces, they're literally lifted above the ground with room to like blow steam through them so that they're warm in the winter. So there would be people whose role was literally to like boil water and then like channel the steam through so that like it's pleasant to walk on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the summer, you just leave it alone and it retains a lot of coolness. You see this in like Adobe insulation of like those thick kind of stone wattle walls that trap heat if you have like a small fire in the winter, but then in the summer, they tend to keep the heat out. And I imagine that if these communities are not nomadic, which I don't think they could be because there's so much risk involved in being like really nomadic and because we've talked about the regionalism, I think these places are really well integrated in for the long term, but living in a place that's unpredictable for the long term means your infrastructure has to be just like really, really good. And it also means the scale can't go up too much because the bigger your living space gets, the harder it is to insulate it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm thinking because there was a thing that we talked about of being a, a slightly urban area of like. Yeah. Almost like food carts that had been piled up and like shops that had been piled around each other, like that totally. serve people of these different regions. Like it it strikes me that like obviously you need to have people who are bringing in, you know, resources to a place like that or are in communication with with a place like that. Uh, in order for it to exist at all. Like you can't have an urban environment without having environments around it that support it. So it it, it kind of feels like this is a sort of like actually well-maintained connection between these different spaces where... Mm -hmm. It's like a hub. Yeah, yeah. I kind of imagine it in a valley too, because if you have mm -hmm. the hub in, in a canyon or valley then you can build these spaces into the walls of the valley. Yeah. Ooh, that's cool. And also that creates 
incentive to invite airships in because if there's enough elevation difference, then one of the easiest ways to go up and down in this region is by airship travel. And so maybe like there's been a trade actually for featherweight for like unlicensed, unregistered featherweight to create small vessels that just like traverse up and down the way like gondolas go through the canals in Venice. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I am definitely seeing like zip lines for this place. And, yeah. You know, I mean, you said gondolas, but like, hey, if you can't get your hand on feather weave to do it, maybe you've just made a complicated machine that like <laughs> is driven by like a water wheel or something. Like, especially yeah. if you've worked out some way to do it, this might be not helpful it could be helpful an interesting (laughs) idea that that i had had is i I, trying to create a sort of like impending threat that the mariner poses to even communities that live inland one of the Mm. things that i was thinking for that are what i call like i need a better name for it but essentially cursed rivers rivers that flow in instead of out You're not flowing out to the ocean. They're starting to flow inland. I kind of like this being a community that like even managed to make the best of like a cursed river. The mariner is like, oh, maybe I'll send a little tendril here. There seem to be a lot of people living here. And there's this river that's flowing the wrong way in. And they figure out a way to like treat it and work with it to like, now you've got a river being served, like like going through this community, which, hey, rivers always rule. Anywhere in, in the world that was doing quite well a long time ago probably had a river somewhere nearby. Rivers are amazing. The biodiversity they bring is amazing. The resources they bring, is, they're just beautiful to be around, too. But yeah, people naturally, I mean, what's what's really interesting about this is the tension, right? Because bodies of water are intrinsically threatening in spear. Mm-hmm. And as people, we feel better being around water, right. whether it's the ocean or the river or a lake, like there, there's just something about a body of water. And this has been shown in studies, like our physiological symptoms tend to relax, our cortisol levels go down, water comforts us. And so this idea that you can be around something where your body is responding to it, but like there's all of these other kind of like magical reasons why you should be afraid of it there's a lot of incentive to learn how to not be afraid of it how to interact with it in a way where it does not pose as much of a threat to like you know try to avoid making those superstitions to engage with it in a way where you're not like tempting fate Mm -hmm. where you're keeping that coastline in in sight where you're avoiding the rusalka because you don't go there at night maybe which is great because it also creates tensions to to build taboos in or like the kind of stupid dares that teenagers would would like give each other. Right? Yeah. But also I love that because any interaction with the land is kind of the same way, whether it's on a short term or long term. If you fuck around and you don't respect ecological balance or environmental balance, like you're you're just going to fuck yourself, which is, you know, kind of what's happening globally right now. But I do love that it's like we still want to be around it. Yeah, it, it's impossible to not want to be in the land, to be near water. The more distance you get from that, the more inclined you are to fuck up that balance, right? And I think that that's in some ways kind of like a mariner's curse itself. The less you work to cultivate that relationship with your environment, and when I say environment, I'm not talking about like 
a sort of artificially constructed American idea of like wilderness, because mm. that is very artificial. I'm talking about literally just the physical place you're living, right? Because even in a suburb, even in the city, in a rural place, like wherever, you are living in a physical place, and that physical place is the environment you're interacting with. And if you take care there, then you are going to learn stuff about the land, kind of whether you mean to or not. At my old job, we talked a lot about accidental land connection and how people in suburbia actually have a lot of it because if they want to grow flowers, you're going to get deer. If you want to (laughs) like mow the lawn, there's going to be gophers and you start to learn them as individuals. It's not just deer in general. There's that deer. It's not squirrels in general. It's that fucking squirrel. Like everyone who interacts with literally just the 10 square feet outside where they live, there's probably like at least one animal where they're like, oh, it's you. And it's not like, an antagonistic relationship, I hope, right? Mm -hmm. But it is sort of like, we're both here and we're both just trying to chill out and maybe you're making it hard or I'm making it hard. One of my favorite internet videos that I've ever seen was just about a man who was trying to grow a garden and a gopher got in there and started messing it up and he put all these... Oh, is this the woodchuck guy? Yeah. Who who made a garden for the woodchuck? A bespoke garden for his woodchuck (laughs) population. Which, yeah. that's the solution. You made it easier to get at food source. And... I, I, I find the same thing with like um, with role-playing, encouraging adults mostly to get into role-playing. Mm. They're self-conscious. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm bad at role-playing. I'm bad at acting. People will be like, oh, I'm not outdoorsy. I don't really get nature. But everyone intrinsically does, actually. They just don't recognize it because there's been this like artificially constructed idea of what the natural world means, which I, I think is a phrase, natural world is one of the worst things to happen to environmental understanding and justice because the whole world is the natural world. The material world, the physical world is the natural world. And I think in Spear, that's like very apparent. There is like a very just common understanding that like we are living, like every aspect of our life is the natural world. Maybe even this early on in the process of this like corporation, people who use featherweight and spend a lot of their life on airships still feel that connection because they have to navigate weird weather patterns they have to integrate in harmoniously with wherever they land which probably means not fucking up people's gardens or food forests or you know whatever and so there is a certain baseline respect you have you've touched on one of one of the other fun world building things that is a little bit neither here nor there about this but like thematically related is the way people navigate and anticipate weather patterns yeah. and sometimes anticipate seasonal shifts and whatnot is through a discipline called star watching, where the stars fell from the sky, but there are still a very few up there and they don't move the way stars normally move. They're not they're not as fixed. They don't move in predictable patterns. If you study the stars and their movements, there are equations that you can kind of plug them into to make certain predictions. It is like, imagine it being kind of like an I Ching thing where you have like a manual that you are like sort of plugging questions and information in into and using the manual as like your guide for interpreting that information that you're dealing with. So it combines the idea of like astral navigation with a little bit of folklore, a little bit of superstition, a little bit of philosophy. Star watching has several different traditions that different cultures have come up with. And some people are like, you got to do these equations to get this information and you'll need this information to do it. 
And yeah. others are like, well, if this is in this position and this is in this position, then probably something like this is happening. So it is all based on connections that your position in space and time and the position of things around you tell you information about your world. And the more you yeah. understand your world, the more you'll accurately be able to anticipate things and make predictions. So like, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, I tend to be a pretty relational person in terms of how I think about systems, how I, you know, just process and, and understand any kind of new information. And I love the idea that there is this relational strategy to navigating. If you don't have a bunch of stars to navigate by, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And there's like a whole convergence of you use story, you use, you use the very unpredictability in a way that you can actually harness that's very cool. Yeah, I really like that. So again, like when I when I pitched like, what if there was this like port city where there's just like food stalls everywhere and lots of little kind of underground theaters, maybe there's like one establishment art center and one, you know, like a half dozen establishment restaurants. But generally speaking, it's kind of like this weird little underground market that's that's above ground. Mm -hmm. The city where I live used to for a while, it was this like, really cool like night market with tons of art vendors who were selling zines and food and drinks and like just all kinds of weird stuff too. There were kind of Oracle booths where just arty 20 somethings would dress up and like tell your fortune, but not according to any kind of like standing tradition. There were like secret warehouse shows where you could go and watch like just really weird clandestine shit that was also like very cool and it happened once a month like a fucking goblin market just like appearing in the infrastructure of the city and then it would like be taken down and i imagine it's like that but like all the time and in broad daylight too like mm -hmm. this is just this is just how people live which means there are pockets of like mundane life and i think like defining what mundane life looks like is really useful for then like throwing into relief the the events the festivals when something dramatic happens in the story for example like it's because it is in contrast to whatever mundane life is established and looks like here and i remember you had a name for this place but i don't remember what it was I, I, you know i think part part of it like one of the reasons that we made this connection early on is i uh, write the skyjack zines which are these little like it's not a world book, but it like gives you snippets of insight into the, the, the setting itself of Sphere. And when I am writing, sometimes I sweat because I have to name things and I'm super bad at naming things as Gion has witnessed firsthand. <laughs> but like one of the things is if I name a place, I am probably naming a place from my understanding of language, which is generally speaking English, which is not great. So sometimes I'm like, well, I don't want it to feel like the whole setting is European. So I don't want to name things and people and whatever and have them all be European names. So I think I named a place that was like sort of an offhand mention in one of the zines. I think it was the Korean word for feast. And I, I think I had made that connection because like, oh, if this is a place that is just full of different food vendors, like obviously you would name it feast. That makes sense to me. Totally. Um, what, um, what word? I love that. I I actually do not know that word. <laughs> I, I, mean, I know like meal, but I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll find it. I really like that. And I think I named it that. I probably used Google Translate, which, you know, gives you middling results. Yeah, I uh, 
I love the idea that it's like a place where the default state is like kind of low key celebration. So there's like a lot of constant storytelling, probably a lot of art and almost regardless of season, right? Because you have to be able to adapt to like sudden changes in weather. There was a a photo I saw recently of uh, there was a freak frost, I want to say in Canada. And someone posted a photo in one of my gardening groups of their rose garden that was completely encased in perfectly clear ice. That's pretty cool. I'm mad about what this is going to do to my roses, Mm -hmm. but this moment is very beautiful. And I imagine that that's a feeling you get used to of just like, I cultivated this beautiful tender thing and it is now literally encased in a sheet of ice, but it's lovely. And so like, maybe there's like little celebrations of that of like, well, we're going to make the best of a kind of shitty thing. Like, there go my flowers, but why don't you come over and we'll have a little party by because like, we gotta we'll eat some these tea. flowers. <laughs> yeah, now we gotta eat them, <laughs> or they go, or like they go to waste, right? And so, like, I think that's where this cool mix of both preserved food staples with like the fresh things you just have to take advantage of because you don't know when you're going to get it again. Yeah, constantly converge, and so it's like an ongoing potluck. I, I did, I did do the googling. the The word that I was thinking of earlier is. I'm, and I'm not going to pronounce it properly, even though I've listened to it three times. It's it's Janchi. <laughs> oh, Janchi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it, meant, it meant both feast and festival. And that was like kind of that environment that we're describing is like, it's always kind of like, hey, we ran into a hardship that is changing what we have to deal with. So we're making the best of it. It is like... I really, yeah, I love this idea that like no matter the season, there's always like lights at night. You know, like maybe there's an an area or like um, there's a way in which you can like put a black, like the equivalent of blackout curtains. So if you need dark to sleep or like you need to go to sleep early with all that insulation, I bet you could soundproof and lightproof an individual home really easily. But if you go out, it's very easy to find just lights everywhere, people telling stories like Spear seems like a, a culture where storytelling is extremely important. Oh, yeah. And so I imagine in the same way you get like street food, you also get like street story vendors where there's like little booths where you can go in or like little campfires or like fire rings where you can sit around. What if there are lights that you have out to sort of like indicate information? Because I imagine very early on in this community being kind of like a post-cataclysmic community, you need to reassure people that you are still there. So like you light a, a lantern or something at night and it indicates like, Hey, we're still here. We're asleep. Please don't bother us. But like, as it kind of develops, it might be, Hey, my restaurant is still open. Yeah. Or I'm about to go out and look for like night critters to gather and whatnot. And so you have all of these lights that you can look around at this community and you can know like, Oh, they're telling stories over there. Oh, they're roasting something over there. That restaurant is about to close up. And like, all of these different things, people just communicating with each other over distance and kind of like passively and not aggressively. Yeah, I I have an idea, which is like that thing I was saying about the soil and riparian zones being very dependent on what the water brings in. Since there's so many changing weather patterns, maybe there are certain soils that combined with salt, because this is a, a real thing, mm-hmm. when you add them to fire, they burn in different colors. And so maybe all of this information is communicated through the color of the fire in your lantern. There's like a way to kind of grind up or, or synthesize that combination of salt and then the soil chemicals 
to create like a big rainbow range of colors. And that's how you you get more subtle information conveyed to each other. And like, that's also another regionalism thing, right? Like maybe one in, in like the, the smaller communities, colors mean something else. But in this one hub in Chanchi, it's like it's its own very complex system. Yeah. Um, that oh. is not found in other places. And it could be a thing too. Like they're, they're talking to like some Corsairs or whatever. And they're like, hey, could you bring us some dirt? <laughs> we yeah. Need, we I mean, yeah, I imagine, especially if magic is practiced, which I imagine it is. Oh, yeah. And I've been listening and I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't completely understand the magic system yet because I'm not that far into the show. But like, it's definitely there. And it does seem like there's a lot of like physical magic, like kind of elemental folkloric magic that uses like physical items and rituals mm-hmm. to, to power it. Like soil from other places could be extremely powerful. You just don't know. It could also be like a blip. Like you have no idea. Yeah. But it's like I think the process of discovery must be really valued because if you are pretty stationary, travels really dangerous. You are basically unless you become one of these airship people uh, of, of various stripes. Skyjacks. Oh, thank you. That's the word. <laughs> yep. That's it. Great. So unless you become a skyjack, you're going to know where you live really well, mm-hmm. which means like there is a lot of discovery because like the seasons are changing and all that. But there's just something about novelty. Yeah. Right? And I think like this hub, the novelty is what powers it too, because there's just novelty everywhere. There's airships coming in. There's probably at this point like docking stations that haven't like, you know, they haven't leveled any part of it, but they've like trained trees and shrubbery to grow clear of certain areas so that ships can dock. There's probably a limit to how many they can fit. But, you know, with these smaller ships too, maybe a a whole crew of skyjacks could come in, unload most of their crew, and then, you know, have a skeleton crew take the ship away while like the trading crew and the kind of negotiating Mm. members of their party stay in Chanchi to to trade and gather and trade information as well, and then like come back at a certain time. And so there has to be a lot of cooperation and communication going on, which is another reason you can't just go in and strong arm your way in because you'll, you know, look like an asshole. Yeah. In addition to like bringing trade to a grinding halt, which is no good for anybody. That is so, that is so great. I, I, I'm very, very excited about this. And like, I feel like I am walking away from this conversation uh, knowing a lot more about how, like the interesting impacts, the sort of like story stuff from Sphere has on the environment and the opportunities that affords us in storytelling. Yeah. I, and I'm so excited to see what this place ends up looking like and feeling like. Yeah. It's Yeah, I just had like 10 little ideas come in and I'm not sure how to organize them, but I like them all. Like I had this one idea of different stories have different traditions, you know, the way like theater has different traditions and and you see like comedial art day and like very somber tragedy and all these things. But all of these different stories are being told and participated in in tandem with this like market, like night market environment. And maybe there's like a certain degree to which there's a whole class of stories that are meant to be experienced while you're eating but the Mm -hmm. ritual of the story is you eat certain foods at certain points in the story so like if something like a like a betrayal happens in the narrative you eat something with a lot of salt if something like sweet happens then you like take a sip of wine like like the equivalent of like a rocky horror picture show thing kind of but it's like food this is dinner theater this is real literally dinner dinner theater theater. this is so good 
storytelling through flavor. Oh my God. I love yeah, that. And l- the different emotional tones, like depending on the story being told, it could be really raucous or it could be very like quiet and meant to be experienced quietly. And maybe those story booths tend to be like more curtained off. Maybe there's like really leafy, thick moss and vines that come down that are like pulled around the diners as they listen to the story so that they're not as impacted by all the noise of the markets outside. And again, those lights, right? Like there is like one of these stories being told here. So like try not to, you know, scream right next to this booth or whatever. Yeah. And if lighting is a part of their culture, it works so well with theater too. That is great. I love it. And I, and that also means that stories being brought in are a major part of trade too. If Mm -hmm. that's like a big component of this, because, you know, underground theater and underground art forms, they they evolve and change really fast. And I think that that is completely also matching with the unpredictability and and unpredictable pace of the seasons. And it sort of fits like with the idea of John Chi forming around displaced people working together. Pat, my, my, my buddy, Pat Rothfuss, like talks a lot about the idea of hospitality being like kind of a, a survival tactic for people in lots of different cultures of like, if somebody shows up to your door who shivering and starving, you take them in and you take care of them and you treat them like a, a friend that you know and send them on their way. Because if you don't do that, the world breaks because then people can't travel right. anymore. If, if you can't get a meal like somewhere when you have no food or find some warmth when it is freezing, then you really can't travel the world, which means things can't happen. So if you are somebody yeah. coming, coming from the outside in John Chi, like you kind of always have a ticket to get your bare necessities because you can mm-hmm. always tell the story of like, well, how'd you get here or where are you from? Exactly. That can yeah. be enough yeah. novelty to like keep the whole system going. Yeah, I think there is a slightly transactional nature to interaction, but one that isn't, it's not cold. You know, the same way that like any relationship, you know, there's been a lot of like diluted and then misleading conversation that's gone off in directions that I'm not thrilled about, about like how emotional labor is transactional. Mm. And like, I think it's very complicated. And in, in a similar way, I imagine that like the exchange of stories, the exchange of, of like lived experience can be transactional in that it literally gets you a meal but it's also there isn't like like someone with like an emotional story abacus sitting behind (laughs) every single counter being like well you get half a glass of water and like uh this slice of bread or whatever like it's very intuitive and like if someone tells a bad story you're not going to be like well you can't have dinner it's just it's just a tradition just like any of the other traditions in spear yeah and and uh just because something might be like baseline transactional in the way of like inviting someone into your home and giving them a glass of water, that doesn't mean that there is like kind of like capitalist system to it. That that feels like a red feather move, yeah. you know, to assign like an exact gram weight to every single <laughs> feeling you might feel. But that's not the way it is, I don't think. I like, um, I'm really grateful that we had the chance to sit down and talk about water being dangerous because that was not the direction I was going in. Now I'm like, okay, cool. But it does create really cool stuff like um, like something I don't know yet how to do, but I really want to learn. And I have friends who do this regularly is free diving. And free diving, especially in the Pacific, is, is, is legit very dangerous 
you know, you can't go alone. You, there's just a lot of risks, so many risks. And when I went with some coworkers to spend a weekend at Stillwater Cove, I remember tide pool foraging and two of them like disappearing into the sea and then coming out with like one of those iron rings just full of fish, right? They had just learned how to, to fish with a spear gun. Oh. And, um, you know, they caught like the day's limit within a matter of two hours. And it was such a wonderful feeling to then like, make a fire with them and we cooked some of the fish and butter but we wrapped a lot of it in the seaweed that I caught we had urchins that I'd found and you know had also like brought in some ingredients that we needed to use up because all the ice in the cooler had melted and we just had like a big feast by the fire and we stayed up late and told stories and on some level I imagine that is just the baseline vibe in this in this place of like you're gathering together you're telling stories and also valuable information is being shared. Because if there's encroaching forces outside, you won't know except through Skyjacks coming in and telling you. That That is so good. I, I love that because thematically, I, I don't know if you know how deeply a feeling like the one you described is linked to piracy and historical piracy. Oh, yeah, I don't actually. The word buccaneer is evolved from a word that roughly translates to, to like a type of barbecue Whoa. because there there was, I, and I think this is something that colonial settlers learned from a indigenous people, but like essentially there were these mobile barbecues and buccaneers would, you know, hang out and like cook food around them or whatever. But it, in port, like they kind of became known for using these cooking devices and that just became another word for somebody whose primary job is to live aboard a ship. And like, yes, you, you, you know, transport goods or whatever, but like a big thing that you talk about in your lifestyle is just, yeah, we, we fucking cook out. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's my favorite. That's actually one of the biggest reasons I want to learn how to drive. I don't know how to drive. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. I just never learned as a kid because my parents were usually working and I really want to learn how to drive so I can camp out a lot specifically so I can have that be like a cornerstone of my life because I, I really love the feeling whether I'm alone or not actually I, I get that feeling even by myself of like going out and having my own little space that is not permanent like I am not putting down roots in a place necessarily but I'm enjoying it in the present with the food that I've brought maybe some food that I found and and like sometimes with a friend and or or multiple friends and that feeling of just like right now it's not in a desperate way but like right now all that matters is that we're around this fire and we're enjoying each other's company we're enjoying this food which could be very modest and honestly not that great but like it's going to taste amazing because we're outside and we're with each other and there's always a point at those nights where like we just start looking around and talking about where we are and that will like create more stories of other places we've been or like stories about um, what we think we've seen or are hearing or, or have experienced so far before that night, what we think we might see later. And it's just this convergence of, of experiencing time, experiencing place, experiencing community in a way that feels really special and used to be uh, something I experienced regularly, at least once or twice a month, if not way more because of my job. And now it's very rare for me. And I'm like, I don't want that to be rare. I actually really want that 
to to be a part of my life in a foundational way. And so in some ways, I feel like writing this scenario or it's not scenario, this setting is going to be like wish fulfillment until I do learn how yeah. to drive. <laughs> I, I like it. I can't wait to see what you come up with. This turned out to be very different from what we did with, with Jeff and Aaron, but I like the difference that we came away with. And I'm so excited to yeah. see more of this before we go Gian, if people enjoyed, uh, you know, the things that you had to say, your ideas, where is the best place to find your work? Well, I'm extremely online on Twitter, for better or worse. (laughs) And I do tend to talk about my work there a lot. Fair warning, I also talk about my cat and mushroom hunting and other random stuff. So it's sort of like the chum bucket of, uh, of my ideas. It's just my name, my full name, which will be in the show notes. I also do have a Patreon, which also the handle is my name. And I'm pretty easy to to find. So both Twitter, if you, if you just want to see like the raw ideas, Patreon, if you want to see like small games that do not make it elsewhere. And my game making and game writing tends to be how I synthesize a lot of these ideas. Those are probably the two best places to find me. That is radical. And I, I also want to point out that on April 20th, like if you were listening to this around the time that it comes out, on April 20th, Gian is going to be launching a new Kickstarter, The Shape of Shadows. It's about magic and magicians. I have played little pieces of it and had so much fun with it. I, I know you all will too. So please check that out. And thanks everyone for listening to us. Yeah, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. The history of role-playing games is weird and wild, and we here at System Mastery are determined to look through it all. Every heartbreaker that drove a man to bankruptcy to see his vision of D&D with really specific armor maintenance rules come to fruition. Every game where you get increasingly certain as you read it that this is all just one person's weird fetish. Every system that painstakingly recreates how medieval life was really like, and then also you can cast Fireball. The System Mastery podcast wallows in the filth of RPG history. Come, join us in the muck at System Mastery.